you would, uh, make your way to Matthew chapter 14. While you are doing that, I will tell you a very bad story, which I'm sure you've already heard. That's not a setup. I don't know what is. It's a story about these three uh, pastors who were out fishing in a lake. There was a Baptist preacher, and there was a Methodist preacher, and there was a Presbyterian preacher, and they were out in their (coughs) boat fishing. Got to be about 11 o'clock in the morning, and the Presbyterian pastor got a little thirsty. Says, uh, "Look, guys, how about I, how about we go back and get some, some uh, cokes? I'm getting thirsty." And the Baptist pastor says, "That sounds like a great idea. Let's start rowing back to shore." The Presbyterian pastor says, "No, no, no need for that." Hops out of the boat, walks across the lake to the marina, comes back with a six-pack of coke. And the Baptist preacher's eyes just bugged out about like that. But the Methodist pastor seems to take this whole thing astride. So the Baptist preacher just kind of swallows and. Adjust and they fish a little bit longer, and about an hour later, it gets to be about noon, and the Methodist uh, pastor says, look, I'm a little hungry, and we forgot to pack sandwiches. Uh, how about I get some sandwiches over at the marina? Baptist pastor says, fine, let's start rowing back to shore. Methodist pastor says, no, no need for that. Hops out of the boat, walks across the lake, gets three uh, sandwiches, brings them back, divvies them up. The Baptist pastor's eyes are about that big, and the Presbyterian pastor, though, seems to be taking this pretty much in stride. Well, the Baptist uh, pastor, he swallows a little bit, decides he shouldn't be outdone, and so he says, look, guys, we're out of bait. How about I run back to the marina and get some more bait? The other guys say, fine. He hops out of the boat, sinks straight to the bottom, comes up spluttering, fighting for air, and the Methodist pastor turns to the Presbyterian pastor and says, you think we should have told him where the rocks are? (laughs) But in Matthew... uh, Matthew 14, we have a story about a genuine walking on water, and that's what we want to look at this morning. cartoon came across my desk this uh, last week. It's a picture of Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, and there's this sign posted right by the lake that says, please keep off the water. And uh, fortunately, Jesus didn't pay any attention to that sign. Now, the beginning of the story is found in verse 22. It says, immediately he, that is Jesus, Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. This story, if you glance immediately above, follows the feeding of the 5,000. Actually, the feeding of the 15,000, if you count women and children. Jesus had just finished feeding this vast multitude, and now we're told that immediately after they had finished eating, And immediately after the disciples had collected their 12 hampers full of leftovers, he made the disciples get into the boat. Uh, Look in the margin, if you have a New American Standard, it says he compelled the disciples to get into the boat, forced them to get into the boat. Clear implication is that they wanted to stay with Jesus, but that he insisted that right at that point, immediately after lunch, that they leave, that they depart and go over to the the other side. So there's a real note of urgency about what the Lord does here with the disciples. And we're given the reason for that in verse 23, why he insisted that the disciples depart even before he dismissed the multitudes. After he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. The reason Jesus sent the disciples away, and the reason he sent the multitudes away was that he needed to spend some time alone with God. 
Now, earlier in chapter 14, if you go back, you'll see that Matthew uh, indicates that right before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had gotten news about the death of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a member of his extended family. He was a colleague in ministry. And I think also Jesus knew that in some profound way, his own destiny was tied to the destiny of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist lost his life, Jesus knew that that was a a signal that was a reminder to him that he would forfeit at some point his own life. And I think the news jolted him uh, pretty hard. And Matthew tells us back in verse 13 that that's the reason that Jesus initially withdrew with his disciples to go across the, the lake. He needed to get away from the pressure and the stress of his circumstances and spend some time alone, some R&R, and, and, and rejuvenate and have some opportunity to sort of cope with this distressing news. But as you remember, the word leaked out and the 5,000 followed him around the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, as was typical with Jesus, out of his compassion, he ministered to this people by teaching them and then by feeding them. And now it's late afternoon, probably sometime between 3 and 6 in the afternoon. Jesus has finished teaching and feeding the multitudes. And he still has not had the time he needs to be alone with God. And so he gently insists that the people around him leave, depart, so that he can have this time alone with God. I think there's a profound lesson in that for us, that this is the way in which Jesus coped with stress in his own life. He insisted that he find time to be alone with God. didn't have to be every day. All of us can identify with being in very pressured circumstances where we may go several days without any quality time alone with God and we'll just feel at that point almost a desperate need to just carve out some time to sit down and be alone with our Father. And Jesus in his humanity felt the same need. So if he needed this time alone with God, then certainly we do. And if Jesus was prepared to gently insist that people who were close to him take a hike while he did it, then I think we can exercise the same privilege. Well, what was happening to the disciples at this point? Well, we're told in verse 24 that the boat that they were in was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. The boat, Matthew says, was many stadia away from the land. A stadia is 607 feet, 192 meters, if anybody's counting. And the boat was many stadia away from the land. And Matthew tells us that the boat was battered by the waves. The literal translation of that word battered is tormented or tortured. And the wind, Matthew explains, was blowing against the disciples. So their sails were of no use at this point, and they were left to rowing, struggling against a very strong headwind. Now, Matthew uses a very interesting word, and I've puzzled over this word a lot, and I'm going to try out a suggestion on you this morning. Notice that Matthew says the boat was already a great distance from land. Now, we see in the next verse that when Jesus comes to them, it was early in the morning, probably 4.30 in the morning, some 10 or 11 hours after they had left Bethsaida to head across the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Now, if Matthew's talking about their point of departure, he would say they were only a few stadia away, so he can't be talking about their point of departure. But if he's talking about their destination, you would expect him to say that the boat was still 
many stadia away from land. You wouldn't expect him to say the boat was already many stadia from land after they'd been rowing for 10 or 11 hours. So I think what Matthew is indicating here is that this wind was so strong that it was actually blowing the disciples backwards, or at least off course. And by the time the Lord shows up, this boat had already been blown back from their destination or blown off course many stadia. They were actually rowing as hard as they could and losing ground, drifting off course. Luke tells us that the feeding of the 5,000 was held near a little community called Bethsaida, which is right where the Jordan River comes into the Sea of Galilee at the north of the sea. Their destination was Capernaum, which was on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, just a matter of two or three miles. And we're told later in this account that where they wound up instead of at Capernaum was a place called Gennesaret, which was actually a plain that was due west of the Sea of Galilee. So... My guess is that they'd been blown substantially off course and wound up coming to land several miles south of their destination. Now, Mark tells us in his gospel that Jesus saw from his vantage point that the disciples were harassed in rowing is the expression he uses. And my guess is that Jesus, from his vantage point on the hillside where he was spending this time with God, uh, he was able to see the disciples struggling at the oars out there in the lake. We're just told that uh, the wind was strong. There's no mention of a storm here, so it's very likely that this was a clear night, a cloudless night, perhaps even near the full moon, and there was enough moonlight that Jesus could see the disciples and perhaps even saw them coming back into view as the wind blew them off course. Now we're given the response of the Lord in verse 25 when he saw them harassed in rowing. In the fourth watch of the night, verse 25, he came to them walking upon the sea. The Romans divided the night, the time period between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. into four watches, probably referring to the changing of the guard and military camps and so forth. And so the night from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. was divided into four sections. First watch would be 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Fourth watch, therefore, would be 3 o'clock in the morning to 6 in the morning. And somewhere in that time frame, Jesus spotted the disciples, harassed and rowing, came down from the hillside, and walked across the water to check up on them. So that gives you an idea, as I mentioned before, how long the disciples had been out there struggling against the wind. And it also gives us some indication of how long the Lord had spent in prayer with the Heavenly Father. Now, Mark tells us that uh, Jesus intended to pass by the disciples. That when he set out across the Sea of Galilee, he did not intend to uh, stop and evidently didn't even intend to stop and chat. He just intended to check up on them, see how they were doing, and then keep going, meet them on the, on the other side. And I find something very significant in that. It's puzzling, but I think there is a... There's a lesson in that, that it's not always the intention of the Lord to dramatically intervene in our circumstances, even when we are rowing against the wind, and even when we seem to be losing ground. That he's there, he checks up on us, he monitors our progress, he's always aware of exactly how we're doing and exactly what we're up against. 
But if he sees that we're going to make it, and Jesus could see that they hadn't run out of energy, he could see that the wind was going to die down as it did in, later in, the, in this episode, and he could see that they were eventually going to make it. And so he intended to pass on by. It isn't always his purpose to dramatically and supernaturally inject himself into our circumstances, even when we're rowing against the wind. The thing that strikes me about this is just how matter-of-factly his walking on the water is introduced into the narrative. It just says, there he was, walking on upon the sea. No fanfare, no drum roll, no um, trumpet fanfare. Just a simple statement that he was walking upon the sea. Just a very matter-of-fact introduction of this phenomenal event into the record. This is really, when you think about it, utterly incredible. The wind was blowing so hard that even strong sailors rowing against the wind were losing ground. The waves were choppy. Expect the wind was strong enough that it whip up white, white caps and then blow the white caps to smithereens. And yet here comes the Lord out for a midnight stroll on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of these sorts of conditions. I uh, remember reading a few years ago about an exhibition that uh, Tom Watson and several other professional golfers staged out at Hillcrest Country Club. And one of the things that happened that day is one of the golfers topped a ball on this par three hole that had a lake between the tee and the green. And the ball skipped across this pond and up onto the green and into the hole for a hole in one. (laughs) And that was uh, pretty remarkable. And that was headlines in the paper the next day. Now imagine how much more remarkable it would have been if Tom Watson would have said, listen, guys, you take the cart, I'll meet you at the green, and had walked across the pond himself after his golf ball. And that really would have set the community abuzz. But something like that is what happened, and yet Matthew just very matter-of-factly inserts it into the account. And this explains, by the way, why Jesus could send the disciples off uh, with the boat. He knew a shortcut. At any rate... Jesus evidently got a little too close to the boat, and the disciples spotted him. Verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, it is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. As I recreate this scene, again, I see the disciples huffing, pulling on the oars, straining, and out of the corner of their eye, they catch what looks to be a guy out for a midnight stroll on the Sea of Galilee. They can't believe it, rub their eyes and look again, and sure enough, it is a guy out for a stroll at midnight on a wind-tossed Sea of Galilee. And they just freak out, as you and I, I'm sure, would. And the conclusion they come to is that it's a ghost. It's the word we get our word phantasm from, an apparition or a ghost. This is not exactly normal human behavior. And so the only conclusion they can reach is that this is Poltergeist 5, and it just frightens them right out of their wits. The word that's translated frightened in verse 26 literally means to stir up or to shake up. So as Elvis would say, these guys were all shook up. And they cried out for fear. So Jesus, when he realizes that he's been spotted and that he's provoked uh, panic, and his disciples decides to cancel his trip across the lake and come over and calm their shattered nerves. And this is his response to their fear in verse 27. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, 
It is I. Do not be afraid. What I like about that is that it indicates that although the Lord's response to their their struggle in rowing was at this point to pass right by, his response to their fear was immediate. And the way he dealt with their fear, I think, is the same way in which he meets our fear, responds to our fear, is by speaking a word of comfort and courage to them. And the word of comfort he speaks to the disciples is the same word that he speaks to us. You don't need to fear because it's me. I'm here. Reminds them of his presence and his availability. And this is what is intended to calm their fear. remember reading about a Sunday school was putting a uh, putting on a play, and there was a young boy who was pressed into service at the last minute to take the role of Jesus and speak these words, Fear not, it is I. And uh, he didn't really have time to go over his lines. Couldn't remember exactly where he was supposed to come in. So finally it was his turn in the play, and he got a little flustered, and he rushed out onto the stage and couldn't think of the right words. So what, so what came out was, Don't be scared, ain't nobody but me. And... Uh, <laughs> And this is essentially what the Lord says to the disciples. You don't need to panic. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be frightened. You don't need to be all shook up because it's me. The phrase that's translated, it is I, is a phrase that elsewhere in the Gospels is translated more literally, I am. For instance, it's the phrase that John uses in John 8 when Jesus says that before Abraham was, I am. It's the Greek form of the name of God that he revealed to the Israelites in the Old Testament in Exodus 3, where he revealed his name to Moses as Yahweh, and the name Yahweh is related to the Greek verb, I am. I am who I am was his full name. I am was the abbreviated form of that. I think the reason that Uh, God used this as his personal name with the Israelites as he was communicating to them that you can fill in the blank. I am whatever you need. I am peace when you are troubled. Uh, I am security when you are threatened. Uh, I am joy when you are downcast. I am courage when you are frightened. I am whatever you need. And I think on reflection... As they look back at this account, the disciples realize that that's what Jesus was saying to them at this point. It's take courage because I am, the great I am, is with you, is present among you. Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Now the striking thing, of course, is that their circumstances had not changed. The wind was still blowing, uh, the waves were still choppy, and yet now in place of their panic was a sense of calm and peace because they'd heard this word of encouragement from the Lord himself. We just moved in the last month and our children are now sleeping uh, downstairs in the basement, far enough away that we uh, can't hear them if they call out to us, even if they were to scream. And so we resolved our problem by going down to Radio Shack and buying a little intercom system, pretty handy little deal. You just plug it into the outlet and it operates on an FM circuit inside your home. So we've got one station in each of the kids' bedrooms and one in our master bedroom. And any time now that the children are frightened at night, they can simply press a button and call, and they can hear their father's voice speaking to them, telling them it's okay not to be afraid. They can summon me if I'm needed. 
And this settles them down. It calms them. Now, if they knew as much about me as I do, they wouldn't find that particularly comforting, <laughs> but, but it does seem to work. And that's, I think, the same thing that's going on here, that the disciples in their panic and their fear heard a word from the Lord saying to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And that's a word, I think, that Jesus would want to pass on to you this morning. If you feel like you're rowing against the wind and losing ground, being blown off course, this is what the Lord says to you. Take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Now, I expect what was going on at this point in the boat is that all of the disciples were checking their heart rate and blood pressure and trying to figure out exactly how Jesus had done this, looking for pontoon shoes or something like that. And they're uh, just kind of calming down, trying to collect their shattered nerves. All of them, that is, except for Peter. And we see Peter's response in verse 28 and 29. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. This little episode's got Peter written all over it. You'll notice, to begin with, Peter answered the Lord. Well, Jesus really hadn't asked him a question, but that sort of detail never stopped Peter before. (laughs) And uh, you'll notice that Peter really wasn't thinking too far ahead here at this point. What was he going to do if he got out there? Get out there and say, well, Lord, what do we do now? And the Lord would say, well, we go back to the boat you just got out of. But this is typical Peter, impulsive and rash. And I expect, my guess is that Jesus hadn't even factored this possibility into the equation. That he was probably as surprised as anyone else when Peter suggested, Lord, if you command me, I can walk on water. Now I expect the Lord's response to this was just sheer delight. He probably just chuckled, shook his head, said, that's Peter. That's why I love this guy. Come on, big fella, give it a shot. That's a great idea. You're exactly right. I hadn't thought of that, but you're exactly right. You can do it if I bid you to come. And so he says, come on, Peter, give it a try. And so Peter, in what's really a truly an amazing uh, declaration, is he got out of the boat in verse 29 and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Now, this is an amazing, literally an amazing step of faith that Peter took at this point. And I think we see in his experience here the difference between faith and presumption. Peter was willing at this point to step out in faith and attempt something that no ordinary man had ever done before. And yet what made this something that wasn't presumption but faith was that he had some indication that the Lord was in this, that it was the Lord's idea, that the Lord was in concert with this. All the time I'll run across people who will take what they think are bold, audacious steps of faith, but they have no indication from any, any reason that God is in this, that this is his will, this is his plan, and therefore they sink right to the bottom. But Peter, first of all, got clearance uh, from the tower and had the assurance that, yes, although this was a bold step of faith, this was the sort of step of faith that the Lord himself would honor. And on that basis, then, he was willing to step out. Now, the simple declaration that Peter walked on the water, verse 29, is even more amazing than the statement that Jesus walked on water because our response to that tends to be, well, yeah, Jesus had an edge. He was God. 
But Peter was as ordinary as you and I. He was an ordinary, garden-variety, vanilla-type individual, just like you and I. Nothing exceptional about him in the least. And yet he was able to duplicate this incredible miracle that he had just seen the Lord perform of walking on these choppy waves. And I think what this shows us, what Peter's example shows us, is that we were intended by God's design to walk just as Jesus walked. In other words, when we see the life and the character of Jesus displayed in the Gospels, and we see his poise under pressure, we see his patience with difficult people, we see his wisdom when he knows just when to rebuke and just when to confront and just when to offer a word of comfort and his timing and his discernment and his love, his firmness and his patience and his self-control. What Peter's example shows us here is that that lifestyle is something that we were intended to imitate. That wasn't just for him. That's not a lifestyle which is out of reach. That if we, like Peter, will fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, he will begin to impart to us the same power and the same capacity and the same character that he himself demonstrated on earth. And there's another great lesson in this, I believe, in Peter's example, is that Peter shows us that by faith we can rise above our circumstances. That even when the wind is blowing against us, even when the sea is choppy, even when it's dark, even when circumstances are threatening, even life-threatening, that if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, it's possible for us to rise above our circumstances. We do not need to be taken down under the waves, no matter how rough the sea is, no matter how white the water is, we don't have to be taken down. By fixing our eyes on the Lord, we can rise above our circumstances. Now, I expect in Peter's case that he didn't just jump out of the boat and run to the Lord. I expect that he perched on the edge of the boat and had to think about this for a minute and then probably gingerly put one foot down as he kept his eyes on the Lord and found that his weight held and then he gingerly put another foot forward and found that the Lord was holding him up until eventually he was able to walk on water. So it often begins with a very tentative step and the Lord uh, may be doing the same thing to you this morning, calling to you, come, take that step of faith. The waters look rough, looks threatening, looks like you could sink, but I'm bidding you to step out of the boat, take one step of faith in my direction, and I'll show you that your weight will hold. Remember Howard Hendricks uh, asking, talking about a time we asked a friend of his how he was doing, and the man said, well, I'm doing okay under the circumstances. And Hendricks said, well, what are you doing under there? And... <laughs> Peter shows us here that we do not have to be swallowed up and overwhelmed by our circumstances. Now in verses 30 and 31, we see the continuation of the Peter episode. But seeing the wind, in verse 30, he, that is Peter, became afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? First thing that strikes me in this little section is seeing just how far Peter made it. We don't know how far from the boat Jesus was, but 
Peter had managed to walk all but the last step or two. He was close enough to the Lord that all the Lord had to do to rescue him was to stretch out his hand and grab hold of Peter. So he'd almost made it. And the second thing, obviously, that's striking in this narrative is to identify Peter's mistake. And that's found in the very first phrase in verse 30, seeing the wind or looking at the wind. More accurately, looking at the effects of the wind, looking at the white caps and the uh, depth of the troughs between the waves. As Peter looked at the wind, he began to sink. Now, the clear implication is that he was looking at the wind and at the sea instead of looking at the Lord. For that brief moment, he took his eyes off the Lord and he began to sink. One of the uh, key principles in athletics is to keep your eye on the ball. There's hardly a sport in which that rule does not apply. If you're a batter in baseball, you keep your eye on the ball till it makes contact with the bat. If you're playing center field, you keep your eye on the ball as it comes into the mitt. If you're a receiver in football, you keep your eye on the ball until you cradle it in your, your arms. All of us have seen examples probably and. NFL game of the week when a receiver turns to run before he's followed the ball all the way into his hands and inevitably he'll drop it, fumble it away. Same rule applies in golf. Now you think in golf it would be the easiest thing in the world to keep your eye on the ball because it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't move. But this is one of the most fundamentally violated rules in golf. Uh, golfers taking their eye off the ball just before contact is made, looking up to see where the ball is going. And of course it's not going anywhere if you take your eye off the ball. And that's what happened to Peter, is he had shifted his focus from the Lord to his circumstances. And when we make the same mistake that Peter made, then we will begin to sink under the weight of our circumstances. Now, peripheral vision is a marvelous thing. It enables us to keep track of things that aren't right in front of us. I can look right down this middle aisle, and yet with my peripheral vision, I can sort of have an eye on everybody in the room. But the important thing that Peter understand is what understood and learned from this episode is what are you focusing on and what's in your peripheral vision. Same thing can happen with finances, for instance. Probably all of us in this room have had times, maybe recently, maybe frequently, in which we become distressed and pressured over the financial pressure that we experience. And it's easy for us to become preoccupied with the bottom line and become anxious over how we're going to make it to the end of the month. And in so doing, our focus is on the rough water instead of on the Lord. And that's the great lesson that Peter learned in this, is that the secret to rising above our circumstances is to keep our focus on the Lord and keep our difficulties and adversities in our peripheral field of vision. Now, the text says an interesting thing to me. It says that Peter, in verse 30, began to sink. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never begun to sink in my life. You just sink. There's no beginning about it. So I expect that what was happening to Peter at this point is his faith had sprung a slow leak. It wasn't a blowout. It was a slow leak, and he could feel himself start to to slip under. And that often happens to us. We'll be doing very well for for a period of time, and then right before we're just about to make it, we'll feel our grip beginning to loosen. And we'll feel ourselves beginning to sink under the waves. Now, what I think is incredibly encouraging about the Lord's response 
at, at this point is the way in which he deals with Peter. Now, what Peter experienced here was a failure of faith. He did not need to sink beneath the waves. Uh, he could have continued to walk above his circumstances until he had reached the Lord, but his faith failed him. Now, you might expect that uh, the Lord would fold his arms and say, Okay, buddy, you blew it, now swim for it. But he doesn't do that. He instantly, when Peter cries out and says, Lord, save me, immediately the Lord reaches out his hand and pulls him out and enables Peter once again to walk on the water. I expect that's how they got back to the boat. Walked together, arm in arm, back to the boat. And once again, Peter was lifted up above his circumstances. When my kids uh, were learning how to cross one of those horizontal ladders, you've seen them on playgrounds, I don't know what you call them exactly, jungle gym ladders where you go hand over hand. When they were small, it was a uh, it was a scary drop if they were to let go of the rung, and that's what frightened them. But what enabled them to begin to learn how to do that was when I would prop them up on that first rung, and then I stood there right underneath them. And then whenever they happened to lose their grip on a rung, I was there to catch them. And that's what enabled them to learn how to cross that overhand ladder. And that's the thing that I, I think is really a tremendous comfort to us in this little story is just to realize how complete the coverage is that the Lord has provided for us. He has given us the capacity, if we fix our eyes on him, to rise above our circumstances. But if we lose our focus on him, he doesn't abandon us to our own devices. He doesn't get frustrated or impatient or disappointed in us. But instead, he reaches out to lift us up and stand us once again on firm ground. And then when... Jesus gets Peter back to the boat. He calls him, O you of little faith. That's five words in English, but it's only one word in Greek. And I expect that this was the Lord's favorite nickname for his disciples. He occasionally will refer to them as oligopistus, one word meaning O you of little faith. And I think it was gentle. There was no harshness in this rebuke, but it was a simple reminder to Peter that the secret to all of life is faith, quiet, simple faith and the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. That's the secret to being, being able to handle rough water is a quiet, simple faith in Jesus. Now the response of the disciples in uh, verse 32 and 33 is profound. When they got into the boat, verse 32, the wind stopped. We don't know whether it was miraculous that it stopped or simply the timing of it. Perhaps the Lord could see and sense that the wind was going to abate shortly. But regardless, the wind that had been blowing stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly, or truly, or in truth, really, actually, God's Son. This episode, if there was ever any doubt in their mind that this man was the Son of God, was removed by this episode. And I think the first thing, of course, that impressed them about the reality of of Jesus' divinity was the fact that he was able to walk on water. showed his mastery and his control over the created order. They'd never seen anyone do that before. But I think the other thing that profoundly impressed them is they saw that, that Jesus could impart that same power, that same capacity to ordinary human beings. And they realized that this is the Son of God. This is one at whose feet we can fall and worship now, we will take the next few minutes of our worship time this morning to celebrate the Lord's 
table together. What we'd like to do in the, as we go to the first element, we'll sing a song in just a moment to prepare ourselves for worship. But what we will do when we come to the first element is spend some time uh, in meditation. And what I'd like you to do as we as the first element is distributed, is to take this opportunity to think about this story and to see where you might fit in this story. I think all of us have a place in the story. Perhaps you're at the place that the Lord was at the beginning of this episode, desperately needing some time alone with God. We'll take these next few minutes as the first installment on that time that you need. Or perhaps you're rowing against the wind, feel like you're losing ground. Remember during this time of meditation that the Lord is there, that he's present, that he's aware of your struggle, and he's available and ready to step in if he's needed. Perhaps you are frightened as the disciples were and fearful of something that you face. Remember the Lord's words, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Maybe you're perched on the edge of the boat like Peter was, and the Lord is summoning you to take a a step of faith. And it seems like you're putting everything at risk if you step off the edge and the security of that boat. But he's calling you to come with your eyes fixed on him. We'll use this next few moments to take that first tentative step of faith out of the boat. Maybe by his grace uh, you're walking uh, on the sea, but your circumstances are troubled. The wind is whipping about you, and yet by his grace you found a basis of peace and confidence and tranquility. Well, praise him and thank him for that. Possibly you're sinking, and what you may need to do in the next few minutes is simply cry out to the Lord, Lord, I'm sinking. Save me. Maybe you're in the position that the disciples were at the conclusion of this episode. The seas are calm, and they're simply overcome with a sense of the... Uh, dignity and the majesty of the Lord. If your life right now is at a point of tranquility and rest and security, then use these next few minutes to simply worship and praise him as God's son. Let's pray just for a moment before we sing. Father, we do want to thank you for uh, this little story. We see how much truth there is in this that can be of help to us. And I pray in these next uh, few minutes as we sing and then as we go to gather around the Lord's table, that you would be present in this time and encourage us and uh, comfort us with the truth from this little story. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.